Well, good weekend, everyone. It's uh, great to be back with you after my study break. I bring you greetings from India, where I taught about 140 of our uh, national church planners throughout Asia, and it was a wonderful time, and they send you their greetings. Had a chance to visit our campuses as well and see the exciting things that are happening at Loring Park and Edina, but it's great to be back with you, and I'm looking forward to this year of teaching planned all the way out to the end of uh, June next year, and very excited about the things I think God wants us to talk about. And one of those things that we're going to talk about this month is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is very God. And the, the Trinity is hard for us to comprehend. One God, three persons, yet one God. It is a mystery that we will probably never understand, at least on this side. And therefore, over the next four weeks, we're just kind of skimming the surface because you can never exhaust understanding who God is. But that's what we're going to try to do is understand how God wants to dwell in our lives, how God can be present in the here and now in our life. And if you're, you know, somewhat skeptical, you're watching online, you're skeptical, I want to encourage you to stay with us during this series. Because you might be thinking, yourself, well, how is it that, I mean, I have a hard time believing in God, let alone God indwelling me. Where, I mean, where's the evidence of that? How does that really work? Stay with the series, invite your skeptical friends to join you because each weekend, we're going to kind of delve into some of the doubts that we have about the supernatural and, and understand how God is at work. Because there's one thing I am sure of, and that is that we are living in a time when people are absolutely fascinated with spiritual experiences and are in pursuit of a spiritual experience. And not every spiritual experience, by the way, is of God. And we have to remember that. We'll talk more about that next weekend. And the reason why there's so much interest in this whether you're a Christian or not, it's because there's kind of a backlash to what has happened in our minds and our ideas of what the world was supposed to be like by now. See, the sons and daughters of the Enlightenment said that there would come a day, it should have happened by now, when God would no longer be needed and religion would be irrelevant and the Bible would have really no place at all. That man with his own mind, his own reasoning, his own psychology would be able to answer all the mysteries of life and explain how the universe got here. Science would be kind of our new religion. And while I'm all for science, and I think actually science points a lot towards God, what's happened is we've come full circle and we still can't answer the question, how did we get here? How did this all happen? I mean, science has led us to, you know, back kind of where we started and said, look, you have two choices. Either we believe in an uncaused cause of all of this, God, or we have to just believe that matter is eternal. And believe me, it takes as much faith to believe that matter is eternal as it does to believe in God. And if you believe that matter is eternal, then you've just, you've just basically denounced the scientific method. And so people are, you know, saying there has to be more. And I'll tell you why next weekend, why there's something in us that says there has to be more. And so we start looking to all kinds of ways to find a solution. And technology comes along. And technology tries to offer kind of an escape from, you know, from this reality and in, in, in kind of a, a, a way of experiencing another reality. It's called virtual reality. The word virtual means near reality. And every one of us has probably experienced virtual re reality. Maybe you've put on the 3D glasses at the theater in front of your television. And, you know, you fool your mind and your eyes and you think you're actually in the story. Or you can, you know, reach out and touch or you duck because it's coming at you. Or maybe you've been to you know, a, an amusement park like Disney World, and you got strapped into a ride, and you felt like you escaped the Earth's gravity, and you were now traveling in space, and you're taking on aliens, and you really feel like you're, you're there. 
<clears throat> you can even feel like you're weightless. Or, you know, there are millions and millions of people around the world, and especially in this country, adults and young people who sit in front of video consoles. And you just get focused on that, you know, and, and it's like you, you're able to kind of escape this life for a while and you, you enter into another world and you have those controllers in your hands and all of a sudden you have supernatural powers and you can die and live again. But at the end of the day, you take the glasses off, you're back here. <laughs> you get out of the ride, you're walking on earth again. You stop playing the video game and it's reality again. And all those things are illusions. And so it just creates this emptiness. Technology can't even answer that. That search, that, that hunger for the divine, for that which is supernatural, for that which is truly of God. And that's what's so wonderful about being a follower of Jesus. As we put our faith in Christ, we come into the relationship with God. But listen carefully, God goes one step further and he actually brings his presence into our lives. And we talk oftentimes about being filled with the Spirit. That is becoming very aware and yielded to God's presence in us. So let's get started. I want to start with a word from Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 7. He said to his followers, But in fact, it is best for you, we conclude ourselves, that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate, another name for the Holy Spirit, won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. In essence, what Jesus is saying is this. It is better that I go away because it's better for me to be in you than to be beside you. It is better that I go away because it's better for me to be in you than beside you. You know, a lot of times people, you ask them, if you could go back in time, where would you like to be in? You know, we kind of think to ourselves, that would be awesome to go back and to walk with Jesus. And I think that's wonderful too, but isn't it better to have Jesus walking in you, to have his presence in you, not just beside you? So what does that look like? How do we realize that? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How is one filled with the Spirit? How does one live in the fullness of the Spirit? What's a Spirit-filled marriage? What's a Spirit-filled church? Start to answer that. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes these words. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He could have written that yesterday, couldn't he? We live in evil days. And the series after this one, I hope you'll be here for it, um, is gonna, it's called Unraveled. And we're going to talk about why is this world coming unraveling right now. And six messages that I, I promise you will give you huge insight into what's going on in the world right now. And because God's already told us what's going on. So you don't want to miss that. He goes on, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So what is the Lord's will? He tells us. The Lord's will is don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, here's God's will, be filled with the Spirit. Now, here comes the results of a Spirit-filled life. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we spent a lot of time unpacking that over the next four weekends. I want to start unpacking just the first verse. Let's read it aloud together. At home, here, ready? Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let's read it one more time. Ready? 
Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, it, when you first read that verse, it's, it's kind of troubling. It's like, why is the Apostle Paul comparing and contrasting being filled with the Spirit with alcohol, with wine in this case? Just like for some of you, it's kind of troubling to see this bottle of wine up here, especially those of you who are Baptists. But just so you know, it's fake wine, all right? It's fake wine, so, uh, so you can feel safe about that, all right? So... What we want to do is we want to talk about the compare and the contrast of, of wine and being filled with the Spirit. What we have to understand contextually is that in the Roman world, people were, were struggling with the reality of the way life was. And they were turning to the bottle for some kind of, of way to numb it, release it, relieve themselves of what was going on around them. And so there was a big problem of drunkenness in the Roman world. Now, that's not to say there's not a problem with that in our world today, because there certainly is. We know people whose lives are devastated by alcohol. Perhaps your life has been devastated by alcohol, your family as well. You know how dangerous and how potent it can be. By the way, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be alcohol. You can turn to other kinds of things that are, you know, kind of like the bottle. It could be porn, it could be lust, it could be uh, greed, it could be uh, food, it could be, you know... Uh, success, material things, you know, looking for a way to deal with reality, looking for a way to have some sense of meaning and esteem in our life. So it, it can represent any number of things. And what Paul in essence says to them is, what you go to the bottle for, you need to go to the Spirit and get it from Him. So I want you to use your imagination with me this weekend, and, and uh, we're, we'll take this and imagine, you know, that it's the real deal, all right? And we got the sponge, so I want you to imagine that this represents your life. And let's break this verse down. So I'm going to pour the, uh, the alternative wine uh, into, the, into the bowl here, all right? This kind of represents, you know, drinking too much, all right, and uh, getting drunk. And the word drunk that's used in this text in the Greek means to soak, uh, to saturate, it means to become dominated by. So, you know, we'll place, we'll place our lives into, into the drink, so to speak. And Paul says, do not become soaked. He says, do not become saturated. Do not become, do not become dominated by that substance or by whatever the bottle may represent in your world. He says, don't let that happen in your life. He says, don't let this lead to debauchery. What in the world does debauchery mean? The word debauchery literally means to waste, to spill over. In fact, Jesus has that uh, picture in mind when he tells the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. He says, the son, in essence, wished his father was dead because he said, I want my inheritance. And he left home. And he went to a far off land and it says he lived a riotous, not righteous, but riotous, like a riot lifestyle. That's debauchery. And he spent it on prostitutes and partying and then he lost it all. And then there was a famine in the land and you know, this is a Jewish young man. He ends up feeding swine and he's even tempted to eat what he's giving the swine. What a disaster. Paul says that's what happens when you allow yourself to be intoxicated by something or someone else. He says, do this, but in the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. No one or nothing else. 
In other words, whatever dominates my life controls my life. Would you agree? Whatever controls my life dominates my life. Whatever controls your life dominates your life. And the thing about alcohol is that, you know, people drink it to excess. That's Paul's issue here. You know, the question is never, um, the question is never how much alcohol will make me drunk. The question is how much of me will alcohol control and make me drunk? Because see, we get this thing in our mind that I can control this. We fool ourselves. Once enough of this is in your system, it takes control of you. Your emotions, your attitude, your perceptions of reality, your perspective, your feelings. And you feel like you're in control, but the reality is, and everybody else who's watching you can tell you, man, you are out of control. It's destroying your life. It's leading to debauchery. Paul says, Paul says, when the Holy Spirit is in control of our life, we really are in and under control. And everybody can see it. And it's a marvelous thing. To be under the control of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is to live a life of balance, is to live a life of refinement, is to live a life of pure power. And the illustration I want to use to help us kind of get this in our, in our minds and hearts are the Olympics. Some of you enjoy watching the Olympics. Marsha, my wife, and I love watching the Olympics. And, you know, our, our, one of our favorite sports in the Olympics is the gymnastics. Some of you like that. It's just, I love watching the gymnasts. It is amazing how they take that top strength and that bottom strength in their body, right? I mean, their whole body is so muscular, so strong, so full of energy. And, you know, they refine it. They, they work at it. They discipline themselves. And they're able to control it. And they're able to do the most amazing things that we could not do. Because they're just able to, you know, compact that power in. And, well, I just want to show you a, a couple of pictures like this one. I mean, the balance beam to me is, the, is like the biggest test of an athlete's abilities. I mean, look at her. I don't know if I could even stand on that with two feet on it. But look at her. One foot. And she's, you know, got her arms spread and the other leg in the air. And it looks so elegant, doesn't it? It looks so graceful. They make it look so simple. I want to tell you what. That is power under great control. How about this one? This almost takes my breath away. I mean, you just, you've seen that, right? In, in the Olympics, you've watched this in the world trials or whatever it is. I mean, she's going to flip all the way over and end up on both feet on that beam. And look at the, there, do you know how much power is involved in this? How much energy is being unleashed there? But it's all so focused and it looks so easy and it looks so elegant. Or this little series uh, that this gymnast does, eventually, you know, uh, going off the, the beam, doing a somersault or two and landing on the mat. And it's just, it's just amazing. Even when they mess up, it's amazing. Yeah, we couldn't do that. What you just saw in those pictures, that power under control, the beauty and the grace of it, is what the Holy Spirit does in your life and my life. And here's what it looks like. It's described in Galatians chapter 5. Read that chapter later on. 
called the fruit of God's spirit, the result of God's spirit. It's called love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's evidence of a spirit-filled life. That's God's power. No matter what my circumstances are, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. No matter what my relationships are like, no matter what's happening to me, what happens is, the result is, what comes out of me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can I ask you a question? If that's the definition of a spirit-filled life, are you spirit-filled? So you can have the Holy Spirit in your life and not be spirit-filled. We'll talk more about that next weekend. Does that describe your life, your marriage? Does that describe our church? Think about that. Is that are we a spirit-filled church? Is that how we behave toward each other? Is that how we speak? Is that how we act? Is that how we behave toward others? There are a lot of people that think they're a spirit-filled church because, because they get emotional in their services. Next weekend, I want to talk about that. What part does emotion play in being spirit-filled? Because sometimes we can create a pseudo-spirit-filled experience. What I call spiritual virtual reality. Looks real, but it's not. It's really easy for us to fall into that. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, another term for debauchery, uh, another way to define it is exhaustion. Is exhaustion. You know, when you get drunk or when you get high or whatever it is, you, you eventually crash. That's the word we use, right? And when a person crashes, man, and, you know, the next day they got the hangover and they're just exhausted. The Holy Spirit never exhausts you. He invigorates you. Sign of a spirit-filled life is you're not exhausted. Now, this is a good exhaustion. I ran about six miles or five miles yesterday, walked a mile. I think that's okay exhaustion. But there's burnout, and that's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit doesn't burn us out. A spirit-filled church does not burn people out. I think the church, maybe even would, though, we've got some repenting to do in that area. You know, Jesus said, I will build my church. I think sometimes we type A people try to build it for him, and that's why we get exhausted. We need to let the Holy Spirit be in control. Let's go back to uh, drinking again. Talk a little bit about that. That didn't sound real good, did it? Um, Why do people turn to the bottle? And by the way, what I don't want somebody hearing me say is is that alcohol is a sin, all right? The abuse of alcohol is a sin. And, it's, and, and, you know, it's, it can be a very dangerous thing. But why do people turn to the bottle? And when I say turn to the bottle, I mean turn to it in terms of abusing it. Well, a lot of times it's because they're trying to escape their problems. A lot of times it's because they have fear and they think it'll make them more courageous. Sometimes it's because they feel inhibited and they feel like, you know, socially their inhibitions will go away and they'll be more vulnerable. Some people think that alcohol is a stimulant. You know why they think it's a stimulant? Because they think it makes the problems go away. It thinks it makes, they think it makes them more courageous. They think that it makes them more vulnerable. But we know from science that alcohol is not a stimulant. It is a what? It's a depressant. It actually depresses certain part of your brain so you fall under the illusion that your problems are gone. The illusion that you have more courage. The illusion that you're a lot more fun and vulnerable but when you wake up and sober up from the illusion your problems are usually worse your fears 
are worse and people are laughing at you or behind your back. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a pure stimulant. The Holy Spirit stimulates our lives. The Holy Spirit stimulates our mind. The Holy Spirit actually opens our eyes wider. And listen carefully. He allows us to see in what I'll call two dimensions. He allows us to see reality as it is right now. But he also allows us to see the spiritual reality around it. We'll talk a lot more about that next weekend. How does he do that? He does it with the word of God. Now listen very carefully to me, okay? Because again, we'll get more into this next weekend. There's a real danger if you separate the word of God from the Holy Spirit, which some churches, some people do. If I separate the word from the spirit and I, and I just say, forget the spirit, I'm focusing on the word, I end up with legalism, like a Pharisee, pragmatism, a dry orthodoxy. If I just put the word down and ignore it and focus on the Holy Spirit, I end up with fanaticism. And my feelings determine whether I'm of the Spirit or not. And that's a dangerous thing. That's why in the word of God, the scriptures, and Jesus' words to us, the Spirit and the word cannot be separated. They're one and the same. This is God breathed. This is living and active. Jesus said in John chapter 16, he said, when the spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, we speak to you the truth in the spirit. The spirit gives us the truth, enlightens our minds to know the truth. In other words, the word of God is a flashlight in the hands of the Holy Spirit that he uses to illuminate our minds and illuminate our lives and give us understanding about God, ourselves, life, the current reality, and the spiritual reality around us. To be a spirit-filled Christian, to be a spirit-filled church means that we have, we have high regard for the scriptures and for the spirit. And as we take in the scriptures and consume them on a regular basis, the Holy Spirit at work in our lives illumines our minds and gives us understanding and wisdom we wouldn't otherwise have. So, you know, if you're going to be a spiritual Christian, it means you're on a steady diet of God's word. Remember our series on prayer? We said God starts a conversation with us. It's in his word. And, and he wants us to then take the principles and the truths that the spirit illuminates from the word, then to have the conversation back with him. If you don't pay attention to God's word, if you only take it in when you come on a weekend... If you're hit and miss with it, you're not spirit-filled. You may have the Holy Spirit, but you are not spirit-filled. And you're living a dangerous life because you're basically trying to manage your life and everybody else's life with your own wisdom, what you think is right. And you're not giving fuel to the Holy Spirit. It's like a fire. You're not adding any, any wood on the fire. So he can't illuminate what he wants to do in your life. And, and what I want to do is I, I want to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 because... I want you to see how Jesus, how Jesus models this life that we're talking about for us. You know, Jesus became man, right? And he dwelt among us and he humbled himself and, and he, he allowed himself to have to depend on his father and depend on the spirit. And so we have here a great picture. 
And in Matthew chapter 4, we have the story of Jesus heading out in the wilderness where he'll be tempted. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 says, And Jesus, filled with the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, went into the wilderness. Soaked, saturated, dominated by the Holy Spirit, entirely dependent on the Spirit, he faces a very harsh reality. He goes on the passage and says, verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That feels like an understatement to me. I mean, four days, I'm starving. At 40 days and 40 nights, you're on the edge. You are on the edge, physically speaking. You're hanging near death now. And the wilderness there is, is a very dangerous place. Very hot in the day, very cold at night, wild animals. So Jesus, in a humanly speaking, very weakened physical state, Look what happens. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, Satan's presenting an illusion to Jesus. He's in that essence saying, you have power, make those stones bread. And you won't have to face the cross because the whole world will follow you. It's an appeal to materialism. Give people what they want. That's what politicians do, right? I mean, they, they lie and tell us that. Uh, not all, but many. And, uh, and then we, you know, we go for it, right? And we pay for it. But you know, give people what they want. Tell them they can have what they want. And they'll, they'll follow you like sheep to the slaughter. What does Jesus say to him? Full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Flashlight. Satan. I'm illuminating what you're saying to me. It's a, it's a lie. It's a lie. That's not why I've come. Materialism isn't the answer. So, it goes on the passage, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. By the way, um, I've, I've, I've seen that stone on, on the floor they've excavated. That pinnacle stone is there. And if any of you are interested, I think we still have four openings for the trip to Israel in November. We stand there. We talk about this very passage. Verse 6. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, this is an illusion of the will. This is, this is an appeal to the will. You know, why don't you just throw yourself off? Your father will rescue you and the whole world will follow you because they'll see how supernatural you really are. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse seven. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Flashlight. Hey, I'm illuminated the illusion you're presenting here. You can't use God like that. God's not a magic genie you play with. Goes on in the passage, verse 8 says, Again, the devil took him to on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. That's an appeal to the imagination. Materialism, utilitarianism, now the imagination. Let's just imagine this. If you just bow your knee to me, I give you all of this. I'm the God of this world, I give you all of this. And you won't have to go to the cross. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
And the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Jesus shines a flashlight on the illusion and says, no, 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 no. That's not going to work. Even if you gave me all the kingdoms in the world, it won't change. It won't change what's going to happen to mankind. See how Jesus, filled with the Spirit, used the Word of God to shine on the illusion that was being presented, the lies that were being presented, and dealt with the reality? That's what God does. That's what a Spirit-filled person does. They, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God, in focus, in focus, are able to blow away the illusions and the lies and the false realities that this world tries to come up with. Did you notice the athletes on the beam? If you watch them, they are so focused. They forget the noise of the crowd. They forget what's going on around them. They're just focused on exercise, and they literally see themselves doing it before they actually do it. Then they just follow through on it. Paul is saying to us, to be filled with the Spirit is to keep the Word of God in focus as we go through life. And the Spirit illuminates for us what the truth is. You know, Jesus faced the cross. What a brutal reality. All it, all it spelled out was death, pain, suffering. But because he was filled with the Spirit, because he knew the word of his Father, he, he illuminated another reality to him. He looked beyond the cross, and he could see you, and he could see me. And he could see that the cross was the only way that we could be forgiven. And that we could have the hope of eternity in his presence living in our lives. And Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. His eyes were open wide. And he saw the true reality. That's what it means to live a spirit-filled life. Are you living that life?